morning. Nice to see all of you. You sat back, good safe distance. No one in the splash zone here. I appreciate that. Um, one of the first times I remember taking note of Psalm 25, uh, I was sitting at my desk in Manhattan at work, and I was particularly racked by anxiety on this, on this particular day. And I may have read this psalm before, uh, but this time it was like one of those occasions where you read something that just feels so specifically written for you. It was like every sentence I was like, <laughs> somebody's been like seeing inside me, reading my journal, knows what I'm going through, and they've written this like ancient prayer for me. How, how thoughtful. Um, I remember I was sitting there, I took note of the number. I was like, I'm, I'm grateful the Psalms are numbered. This is number 25. I'm going to mark this one down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember, I'm going to remember this. I, I read each word of Psalm 25 uh, like it was a lifeline. That's how I felt. I was like, God, teach me, guide me, show me, like pull me out of the snare, uh, you know, re- rescue me, di- direct me. It was one of the, it was like discovering a prayer where you're asking for rescue and help. But you also know you're in the mess you're in because if you, you got yourself there. Like, I feel like that's a, that's a helpful category of prayer. Like, yes, there are prayers for help. Yes, there are prayers for, for rescue. But like, what do, you, where, what do you pray when you're in a mess that you put yourself in? <laughs> Psalm 25 is, is, is at least, uh, you know, a, a prayer that works in that category. So I, I prayed this prayer sitting at my desk like... Um, yeah, like I was holding on to a, a rope thrown into the water, um, you know, with, with, me, with me drowning. Uh, I didn't actually know it at the time. And my, I didn't even feel like my anxiety, um, you ever, if you've experienced anxiety in different types of ways, sometimes it doesn't necessarily feel exactly connected only to your circumstances. Like certainly you can have anxiety that's ramped up because of stuff going on in your life. But the worst type of anxiety for me was like the irrational fear type of anxiety. Whereas like I couldn't necessarily pinpoint why I was feeling so worked up, but I was. And this psalm was sort of like shining a light on my heart and but I didn't know a, a few weeks from, from that moment at my desk, I was going to be let go from this job um, because they were, they were running out of money. It was the first time that I had been like fired or semi-fired in my life and it was a, it was a wild experience. Um, and I was learning at this, at this time to fight back against my own anxiety, but it was definitely a, day, a day-to-day, day-to-day thing. And... I was so moved by this psalm that I remember like kind of like being overwhelmed with enthusiasm. I like went out into, I was going to meet my friend who worked there as well. And we met in the, in the elevator and I read him the psalm in the elevator. I was so pumped about like, listen to like, and he just like, you could see like he was being nice, but it just didn't register in the same way. It was like, I just came to this prayer at exactly the right moment. And I knew like, okay, this is something for me that I have to tuck away. And um, yeah, I put Psalm 25 in my like keep nearby toolkit for life. Um, Psalm 25, you can have your own numbers. They don't have to be the same as mine. But Psalm 25 is one of my like dear friends. I want this, this, this uh, bad boy close. Um, I want to be able to go and, 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 and converse with this prayer on, on the regular. Another pastor um, I know calls these types of things fighter verses. Um, you should have a little file of, of fighter verses or, or your toolkit for, for, for living. And I have a few that, that I added Psalm 25 to Psalm 34, another psalm about uh, dealing with anxiety. Psalm Psalm 51, a psalm of confession and getting out my heart. Psalm 103, uh, a prayer for when I feel overwhelmed. Um, uh, Psalm 27, another one for pushing back against fear. Psalm 34, another confession. Like I added to these numbers. Psalm 121 that Michael um, preached on a couple weeks ago. I lift my eyes. I lift my eyes to to the Lord from whence my help comes from. Like when I got to remember where the resources for my life really come from, I want to lift my eyes. Do you have a toolkit? Do you have a little file of fighter verses, either, either in a journal, on a computer, in your, in your heart somewhere? I encourage you, if you don't, like, no shame in that, but, like, maybe it's time to, to begin just sort of, like, compiling some, some, you know, places in the Scripture. Psalms are an incredible place to start. But some places in the Scripture that you can return to for real, practical help. These are, these are the Psalms that I go to when I want to get my mind thinking in a different way. 
uh, or when I know that I need to find expression for the tension in my spirit, like I'm moving through my days and I just realize like, something's off, I'm not, I'm not right, like I'm, I'm, I'm really irritable, I'm really anxious, I'm really like, I'm really low or whatever, and I just need to find expression for my spirit. These, these psalms, they, they help me, help me with that. But I want to begin lifting my eyes off of my circumstances, or I'm being dominated by my mood, these psalms are part of the toolkit uh, for, for how, how I do that. So, just as we're going to get into this in just a, a, a moment, I want to say this. I think this is, is, is true for us. But if you're repeatedly thinking or feeling or behaving in a way that you do not want to. So if you're repeatedly thinking, feeling, or behaving in a way that you do not want to, replacement is so much better than removal. Does, does that make sense to you? Like if um, simply trying to get rid of a thought or a feeling or a behavior can be difficult to impossible. But if you can figure out a way to replace that thought or feeling or behavior with something else, you have so much more of a better shot of actually seeing transformation take place. As soon as you try to say, I'm not going to think about this, you're, you're already sort of halfway down the road to thinking about it. Or, or if you've had a bad, a bad sort of pattern of behavior in your life, you're like, I want to cu- cut this out, but it seems like my willpower is only taking me so far. So instead, I, I have to uh, and it's turn the fight over, and, and, and replacement is so much better than uh, re- removal. There's actually a, a really um, magical description, if you'll, if you'll permit me that uh, description, of the renewal of our minds uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans. And you've probably heard this before, but there's so much condensed into just a few sentences that I think you could wring out this, you know, the meaning of these few sentences and, and its application for the rest of your life. But one of the things I've started to see from reading this and praying this over and over for years is the, expi- the, the interplay between your body and your mind, right? Um, I, wanna, I think Psalm 25 is a prayer about uh, wholeness, <laughs> And integrity, that's, the psalmist even says that by the end of the prayer. But it's about realizing that you are a connected whole person. <laughs> that your thoughts, your feelings, your moods, your emotions, your circumstances, uh, they're not just fragmented, isolated things, but they're a, part, they're, they're a part of a connected whole. And there's a lot in the, in the scriptures about how transformation works in the human experience, how we actually change. Um, but something I started noticing as, as I've, I've studied this over the last few years is the interplay between my body and my mind and your body and your mind. Look at, look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice Powerful, you know, sort of poetic imagery here. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. So there is a pattern of this world that that does uh, invite or even sort of move us towards conformity. But instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now this is a very famous passage in, in the New Testament. Um, and, and we're not going to spend the majority of our, of our time here, but I want you just to look, look at it like with me for just a, a moment or two. Uh, God's mercy has come into view for you. In a sense, Paul's saying, look, the entire first 11 chapters of this letter are about unpacking and, and laying out before you God's mercy, the way God has gotten involved in our story, the way God has plunged himself into the human experience, the way Romans 5 says, when we were enemies of God, we brought, in a sense, we brought nothing to the table to deserve God's mercy and grace. He loved us so much. He said, I want you to be part of my family. That he poured out his love on us. Romans 8 is about living in the power of the Holy Spirit in view of all of God's mercy. Let your response be that you offer your body. Uh, that, that, uh, and, and that is, so basically like take actions of surrender 
to God. Take a, that, that's actually what true and proper worship is. And as, as you get moving in your body, taking action in the way of God, you actually have a shot of breaking out of the patterns of this world. So it's saying like, there's, there's powerful forces in the world that are conforming you into a particular way of living. And when you take actions of surrender to God with your actual body, when you do things in the way of God, you begin to have a shot at breaking out of that pattern of conformity and being transformed in your mind. This, that's the piece that I didn't recognize when I, when I read this as a younger person was that like the, the actions of your body end up leading to the transformation of your mind. Now just hold that thought for a second and we'll, we'll come back to it. You will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what happens then is that you come to know God so well that you know what God calls good and what God wants. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, that's a sign of intimacy. In any relationship, like the more you get to know your spouse or a friend, or as you grow in intimacy with someone, one of the things that you learn is the things that they want, the things that they prefer, that you would actually know God so much that you would know what is on God's heart. There's a trans transformation of your mind that leads you to a place of intimacy where you know what God's about in the world, what God wants in the world. So, here's a question for you. Don't answer out loud. Are you good? Do we change our thinking to change our behavior? Option one. Or do we change our behavior to change our thinking? Should we vote? Do we change our thinking to change our behavior? Or do we change our behavior to change our thinking? The scriptures say yes. They say, they say yes. There are times for both. Actually, both ways are, are held out for us in, in the, the counsel of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So one way to approach this is asking the question, is what I primarily need to change my thinking right now or is what I primarily need to change my behavior right now is ask yourself, where are you getting stuck? And if you find yourself getting stuck in the behavior front or the thinking front, maybe you need to approach from the other side. Does that make sense? If you find yourself stuck in one of these categories, maybe the way uh, to, to begin working towards transformation is to approach from the other side. I have friends in, re in recovery and they, and they say things like this, um, move a muscle, change a thought. So what's that? That's like if you find yourself stuck and muddled in the same type of thinking, right? Addictive behavior ends up being, uh, you know, walking, wearing out patterns of the same type of thinking. You may need to move a muscle to change a thought. You may need to begin some new actions to transform your thinking. Now, if you find yourself repeatedly uh, acting out the same types of behaviors that are destructive, that are, that are not what you want in life, you may need to approach from the thinking side. You may need to, to learn something new, to get some new insight, to, to experience transformation. The scriptures hold out both as viable options for, for change for us. Many of you who've been with us for a while are, are going to be familiar with these little representations, my favorite spiritual charts that I'm about to put on, on the screen here. Um, they aren't everything by any means, but they are tools to help us grasp um, just some of the dynamics of our transformation. So um, this is you and this is also me uh, represented here. If you can see, um, we are what? We are a body at least. Um, we, you came into this world with this uh, incredibly beautiful complex mechanism for uh, moving through and perceiving the world. You have uh, five senses, at, you know, at least five physical senses that help you perceive the world. And then you process what you take in in the world and your experiences in the world in your soul. We talked about this last week, but there is a very real animating immaterial part of you that makes you you. That your body can be there and if your soul is absent, we would say, you're not there. You're, you're, you're gone. 
And so the, our soul is a real animating part of us. It's, it's, it's part of the, um, what we came into this world with. And so what is your soul? And there's different ways of conceiving it, but for our purposes, we're going to talk about the soul as your mind, your will, and your emotions. We mentioned this last week, but this is not just the gray matter of your brain and your neural pathways. This is your, your conscious thoughts, your, your memory, your, 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 your consciousness, your ability to conceive of the world. Then you have your will. Your decision-making faculties, your, your discernment, your ability to choose one thing over, an, over another and those decisions really mattering in the world. You have emotional reactions, right? Uh, <laughs> um, pick, pick any example, right? As, as a child, right, you take in the sight of a familiar face that's smiling and taking care of you. You come to recognize that face as one of your parents. You, 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 you in a, with whatever, you know, capabilities you have as, a, as an infant, you reach out or smile or make some, some indication at, right, as, as we grow and you have an emotional reaction. That process works a billion times a day for your entire life. So you have files in your mind. It's crude to talk, like, this is not actually how it works. There's not a filing cabinet in your brain. But, like, if you're sitting in a dark room, and there's a large screen in front of you and raked comfortable seating and, and, a, and a scent drifts through and you take it in through one of your five senses, smell, and you realize that's popcorn. And here I am at the movies, right? You have a file in your brain for popcorn and you know that here at the movies it costs $27. So now you have a choice in your will. Will I fork out $27 to increase my experience of this movie? Yes, I will. And so you go and you pay the $27 and now you bring it back and you have the emotional reaction. And it is a pleasant one, at least at the beginning of the popcorn, right? Before the bank statement or before like what, however you feel after the movie. But like, like that's an example. Like in, in, your in your mind you have a file for butter popcorn at the movies and maybe for you that's small. Mine is very large, that file. Very important file. But you have millions and millions of those. This is how you navigated the playground as, as a kid. This is how you dealt with social situations in, in high school. This is how you, you navigated your relationship with your parents. This is the, how you learned to do stu study habits or not study habits in school. This is how uh, uh, you know, risk tolerant or risk averse you are. Right? It all comes from working this system over and over and over again. You take in information in the world. You process it in your mind. You make choices. You have emotional reactions. This works a million times a day. And, and this is not, not bad on its own. But the scripture talks about this, one of the ways it talks about this is the, is the flesh. And, and the flesh in the, in, the, in the New Testament in particular is not saying necessarily like a, an overtly sinful or bad thing. It's just a way of operating that doesn't take God into account. So when, when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, when someone surrenders their heart to Christ... Something so dramatic that Jesus says it's like you're being born in a new way. You're born in a new way. What on earth is going on? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. They're entirely different than they were before. So it's not, this system on its own is not the only thing at play anymore. We, we become alive in a new way. And the way the scripture talks about that is that we're filled with the spirit of God. So we're going to split the pizza into three parts now. There, there we go, okay? So when someone comes to, to know Christ, we're forgiven for all of our sins. Everything that would separate us from God is dealt with by what Jesus has done on the cross. And then he gives us his spirit of life. So the, the cross is about winning our forgiveness and uniting us to God. And the resurrection is about us being filled with the life of God so that the, th the same thing that's true about Jesus is true about us. So when the scripture says you become born again or, or anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, they're saying you're learning to live by a new mechanism. You're learning to live by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 is entirely about learning to live by the Spirit. That the life of God is animating your life and choices. Now, your old pattern is still there. It's, it's crucified, it's surrendered, but it's also something that you're having to, to, to learn to, to choose the way of the Spirit. Live by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh, right? Learn, learn to live by the Spirit and you won't only be asked, or you won't only be living out of this old, old pattern and category. So... 
there's millions of ways that the Holy Spirit might speak to you. You could be on a walk in nature. Um, a friend might come up to you and, and say something uh, I- encouraging. But there's at least these four ways that the, the Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit promises the Holy Spirit will be ministering to us. These are at least four, if you want to say, I want to learn to live by the Holy Spirit, these four places are places that you can connect with the life of of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God, worship, prayer, and and community. Uh, The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It is is a way that the Spirit communicates to our hearts. Um, Jesus said to his disciples, my Spirit is going to remind you of the things that I've told you. My Spirit's going to, like, you tuck Psalm 25 away into your heart, and when you need it, the the Holy Spirit will call to mind this, you know, his Word. Worship so many people experience this. They come into church, they have no framework at all for, for God or Christianity. And they'll say things like, there was an energy when you guys were singing. And it's like, what's going on there? The, the, the Spirit of God inhabits the praises of his people. When, when Jesus is being lifted up, the Holy Spirit often moves in those moments. Prayer, and, and yes, any type of prayer is, it works and is beautiful and is important, but like we're talking specifically about praying in the Spirit, allowing God, God to, to, to speak and commune at the innermost part of our being, and then community, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. That God is community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we know God in community. It's not just a solo journey with you and your journal. Okay, we've talked about this before. Um, but the reality is, you and I might find ourselves, uh, go to the next slide. It, oh, sorry. Is there one that says patterns? Yes, there we go. Um, so, that first depiction of the soul and the body, the way we all sort of come into the world, you can have patterns, habits, strongholds that develop in, in, in your life connected to, uh, to, this, to this pattern that you, were, that you were born into. The Holy Spirit makes us alive in a new way. And you guys with me? That means our way of changing, is, it, it matters. It's really important. We're not trying to put all the emphasis on our willpower. And... That may feel important or not important to you right now, but if you ever find yourself in a place where you want to change a thought, a feeling, or a behavior, and you can't, it becomes really important. What do you do to experience change if your willpower's not working? And you see little examples of this, like a willpower is a finite resource, it, it runs out, like you can use it for a while. Why do you break your diet at the end of the day, right? Because all day you've made the right choice, but now it's like, ah, I'm done, I'm just done. And you, and you give up your willpower, willpower is, is good for making small, you know, little changes, but, or, or, or moving across the country, your willpower, you can just decide to do it. But if you want to change patterns of thought, feeling, and behavior, your willpower is really a finite resource. And so the the, the letter to the Romans is, is talking about how to learn to live and change by the Holy Spirit. And Psalm 25 is a prophetic picture of that in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's how it actually works. It's, it's, um, it's, it's learning to let the Spirit into your body and your mind in a way that leads to transformation. I think I've said enough about this, but I want to say a massive key is Honesty. A massive key, and I think something that you see demonstrated in Psalm 25 is honesty. Learning to really be honest with God, learning to really be honest with yourself is sort of like this this threshold, this doorway of transformation. Prayer is a space for honesty. And and honesty is a way to pray. Like, it's completely interwoven. And if you don't know prayer in this way, I, wanna, I just want to invite you into the threshold, right? Prayer is, is a way to be honest with God and honest with yourself. And also, honesty is a way to grow in prayer. If you're wondering, where should I start? Start with what's really going on in your life. Start with what's really going on in your circumstances. Start with what's really going on in your moods. Start with what's going on in, in, in your life. Psalm 25 is a huge, huge help in this. And I, I, I find it to be a prayer of, of increasing honesty. In the beginning, 
David is declaring and aspiring to faithfulness in God. He's like, God, I trust you. And everyone else out there is not doing as well. Basically, like, I got, you know, don't let me be put to shame. But there are some people out there, God, you may have noticed, who are being treacherous without cause. Have you, have you seen these people? God, look, look around for them because they're out there. So in the beginning, he's, he's, um, he, he's, he's finding fault in the, in the others out there. And by the end... He's, he's like completely in a different place. It's wild to watch the journey. In the end, he confesses his own part in the trouble. He's admitting his weakness. He's admitting his need. He's asking God for wholeness. He's asking God for integrity. He's the king of Israel. And the last verse, he turns his job over to God. God, will you deliver Israel out of all her troubles? Aren't you the king? <laughs> that's, that's the move. He invites God into the sinews of transformation in his life uh, to, to come down into the nitty-gritty details. And, and honesty is what opens the door. But it's a, it's a prayer that brings his body and his mind, his past, his patterns, all, all into view before, before God. So with our remaining time, which is not that much, um, I want to just show you a couple of the moves David makes in this psalm. Okay, the first move that he makes is, uh, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. So the first thing that we see David doing is putting his trust in God. We've talked about this a, a little bit as we've been moving through the Psalms. That when you, you, you may, you may uh, come into a place where one of the first moves you need to make in prayer is to direct your trust. When you come to prayer, you find that your, your trust, let's say it this way, your pract what you're practically relying on for your life may be scattered in a bunch of different directions. Your, your hope, your sense of identity. You may come to prayer and find that that is dissipated or scattered or confused or located in a place that's not connected to God. And so you're going to take that and one of the moves that you can make in prayer is to put your trust in the Lord. You can, you can, this is one of the ways that you turn the fight over to God. And I... I I put the words put, set, reckon here because this is how it's described in the scriptures. All through the, 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 the accounts of the scripture, you see this process happening over and over again. As a person comes and they find that their hope or their trust or their sense of identity is scattered and in all sorts of places and they gather it back together and put it on the Lord. I'll give you a couple quick examples. Romans 6. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. So this is the uh, apostle talking about the gospel to his own heart. For, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him, right? If, if the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves the older translations, they, they say this kind of word that to me rings southern for some reason, but like reckon yourself. Reckon yourself. What, what is being said there? Basically like take the things that God has said as true about your life and your soul and believe, as, believe as if they are true. Like put, set, reckon yourself to be dead to this old pattern of life and alive. Even if you don't feel dead to this old pattern of life and alive to this new way of living. Reckon yourself, count yourself. I'll give you another example. 1 Peter 1. Therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Set your hope, wherever you find your hope in this particular moment, set it on Christ and who he says you are and what he says your future is and how, and, how, and how God sees you. Count yourself, reckon yourself, set your hope. In my experience, this is tremendously important in the most contested moments of our life. When we're really struggling with, with a pattern of thought or feeling or behavior or when we're really overwhelmed with something, those are the moments where we have to count ourselves 
dead to this old pattern and alive to God in Christ. When we have to set our hope, we have to recognize where it's currently resting and we have to set it back on Christ. It's, it's a, I've shared a little bit about this before and I don't know that I'll even be able to fully uh, unpack the power of this, but there is a hidden... Um, there's a hidden element of spiritual warfare in this, that if you can get this, it will really change the way you, you move through the world. But l- let me say it like this. The, 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 a mentor who was guiding me through my first experiences with like panic level anxiety, and I was having it three and four or five times a day, it was, it was, cri- it was crippling me. And he, he walked me through this, this process. He helped me recognize these patterns that had been true in my body and soul from, from, from a, a long time. And we were working through and inviting Christ in. I was setting my hope on on Christ. I was trusting that what Christ said about me was true. But one of the things he said, he said, if every single time at the very, very beginning of your anxiety, the first moment that you recognize it, and you can substitute anything for this, the first moment of your temptation to that behavior that you want to be free from, the first moment you begin to think in this pattern that's been dragging you down, at the first moment, I want you to turn that thought over to Christ, and then I want you to worship. So I literally, this may sound dramatic, but I carried a note card in my pocket that said, I I have given this area of my life over to Christ. Enemy, take it up with Jesus. And Christ, I just worship you that you have made me free from anxiety. I I worship you that Philippians 4 says I don't have to be anxious about anything. In prayer and supplication, I can make my request known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends human understanding, will guard my heart and mind of Christ Jesus. I would say Psalm 25. I would say Psalm 34. Basically, at the very beginning of the first part of the temptation to anxiety, I would run to worship. Anxiety, run to worship. Anxiety, run to worship. Anxiety, run to worship. So what happened was, every time I had a temptation to be anxious, I went to praise. And my mentor said, we don't think about this a lot, but the world works uh, in spaces of contested worship, and spiritual warfare certainly works on that front. He said, if every time the enemy tempts you to anxiety or your flesh tempts you to anxiety, you run to worship, I promise you, you'll see the temptation decrease. He said, because the enemy doesn't want you, doesn't want you worshiping, and your flesh also is, isn't trying to give attention and direction and affection to something else. So you can literally loosen the power of this stronghold or habit in your life by going to worship at the beginning every single time. And he's like, here's how I want you to test it. I want you to pray this prayer that we put on the card every single time you experience anxiety for a week. And I want you to note, and I want you to make a little tick, day one, tick, 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 every time you have to do it. And he's like, I want you to notice how, many, how it goes down over the course of two weeks. Now, for some of you, that's really weird and strange. And I, I want to tell you, like, dealing with, uh, you know, patterns of thought and behavior and, and feelings, there's, a, we are whole beings and there are many layers. There's, there's diet, there's exercise, there's therapy, there's, there's our psychology, but there is a reality of the spiritual life and there is a reality of spiritual warfare. And this was one sort of insight that I wasn't expecting that is true. If I run to Jesus at the very start of my temptation, then it's, and in some ways my temptation is an impetus for my praise. And, and I bet you'll see that temptation change shape. Put, set, reckon, that's the first move. You're like, that's the first move? Sorry, we're, 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 gonna, we're gonna keep going. We're gonna wrap this up quick. Um, the second thing we see the psalmist doing is, is very simple. Say your situation and ask for help. I want to emphasize this about the Psalms, right? Um, To read the Psalms and not pray them is like, you know, studying a guidebook but not going to the country, right? It's to hear a description of technique but never try, you know, the dance. Like, uh, the Psalms are there for you to pray. And so use them as a model for prayer. But what we see the psalmist doing here is saying his situation in all honesty and then asking for help. He says, um, uh, how I see myself and what might happen to me feel tremendously contested. He begins by saying, I've got shame and I've got enemies. And because it's biblical language, it's quick for us to move past. But have you ever felt shame? Have you ever felt like you genuinely had enemies 
Those two things combined, they make for a very overwhelming experience. When the, when the voice of the critical gaze of your soul, is, the volume is turned up and you're feeling like you're not enough and you never will be and everything good is for other people, right? Those shame voices are loud and then you also feel like the world is against you. That's a desperate place to be. Say your situation and ask for help. I've got shame. I've got enemies. What do I do? I need help. And I... I One of the reasons I love Psalm 25 is these types of prayers. Show me, guide me, teach me. You want to know a safe place to begin praying? Show me, guide me, teach me. Show me what to do. God, guide me out of this situation. Teach me your ways. Bring me into apprenticeship. Instruct my heart. Teach my mind. Teach my emotions. Teach my body. Lead, Lead me in your way everlasting. These these are gold. Gold prayers. And they're connected to the prophetic picture of what Romans 12 talks about. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this old pattern. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you're going to grow in intimacy with God. And what are you going to know? God's way. Show me, guide me, teach me. Like, help me learn your steps. Show show me the, the moves of God in the world. Verse 14 says, God makes his covenant known to us. And the, the, the Hebrew word for friendship is, is not in the NIV, but it's in the Hebrew in, the, in that verse. Basically like, do you know that's the aim for your life? Friendship with God. Friendship with God. And out of that, literally everything else that makes for life flows out of that space of friendship with God. He makes his covenant known to us. He makes the, his dependability, his promise keeping, his rescue, he makes it known to us in friendship. Put, set, reckon, count yourself connected to God. Then say your situation and ask for help. The third thing we see the psalmist doing is he prays the character of God. Pray the character of God. This is one of the patterns of how the faithful people in the scriptures intercede. You see Abraham doing it. You see Moses doing it, right? When God is so fed up with Israel uh, several several times, he's like, I'm done with these people. I'm done. And Abraham will come and say, hey, aren't you our rescuer? Aren't you the God who who, who brought, brought us out? Are you now going to turn your back? Are you now not going to keep your promise? Basically, Abraham prays God's character back to God. He's like, hey, don't forget who you are. And that becomes like the boldness of it, the honesty of it, the rawness of it kind of shocks us. But this is an invitation to you and I to pray God's character. You see it over and over in Psalm 25. Lord, you are good. Good and upright is the Lord. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful. God is the one who will release my feet from the snare. Praying God's character moves our heart to worship. We come into this wide, open, spacious place where we remember who, who God is. We barely have time for this, but I think we should do it, okay? Yeah, let's. Um, I came across a, a little note at the end of an old book. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book on the Psalms called Reflections on the Psalms. That's the title of it. And at the end of it, he has this um, li- little sort of like, three-page chapter called A Word About Praise. And he basically says that as a a very smart uh, new believer, uh, that's my my description, um, he tripped over the fact that God seems to be asking people to praise him all the time. Has that ever bothered you? Why does God, is God insecure? Is God vain? Why is God demanding that people praise him all the time? Like, doesn't he feel secure enough in, in who he is? What's, what's going on? And C.S. Lewis said, this really bothered me. He's like, that's not an attribute that when you see it in a human, you say, that's something that I want to aspire to. Actually, that's, that makes me sort of like a little nauseous when someone's demanding that people praise them and recognize them and say what's be- best about them. We, we don't like that. So why would that be something good in God? And this is what he said. It's very Lewisy, but track with me. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. 
all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poem, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, wow, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and, and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. The good critics found something to praise even in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and unaffected man, even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cookery, could praise a very modest meal. The dyspeptic and the snob found fault with all. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. That, that last phrase re really got me. Inner health made audible. The more, the more free, the more alive we are, the more, the more we're naming the good things, the more we're celebrating life for what it is, right? And this is sometimes a picture that New York put, you know, puts to us. It's like what, 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 a, what a well-adjusted, like successful, sophisticated person is that you fold your arms and find a problem with everything. Like this play wasn't very good. I've seen a few better. This meal, not, not so great. And, and like that's what it is to be sophisticated is that you praise less and less. But actually God made us for our enjoyment to spontaneously overflow into praise. We're, you are made to say, have you read this book? Have you seen this movie? Have you tasted this fried chicken? Like you're made to do that. And, and God, is, God is asking us to praise because he's saying, if you ultimately set your primary affection, devotion, worship on anything less than God, you're going to break that thing and break yourself. So in a backwards way, God is the most loving by saying we have to direct our affection to the thing that is most worthy of it and that our enjoyment of God is to overflow into praise. We're directing one another to the well of life. Oh, taste and see that he is good. Have you experienced his forgiveness? Do you know how much he loves you? These are the things we say back and forth to one another. To direct our primary attention, affection, and devotion to the one place that won't disappoint. Everywhere else that you set your primary attention, affection, and devotion is one day going to go away or break down or not deliver. So God saying, I want you to lift your eyes all the way to me is not vanity or insecurity on God's part. It's love. He's saying, come to me, I'll give you life. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It's, it's an issue of priority. You can't make any other thing ultimate or you will break that thing and break yourself. Put, reckon, trust. Say your situation and ask for help. Pray the character of God. And the last thing that this psalm shows us is this appealing back of the layers. It's like as the psalm goes, you keep getting more and more honest. There's, there's a rhythm that's like, um, God, you're this, and I am this, and here's my situation, and can you help me? And God, don't forget, you're this, and I am this, and here's my situation, and can you help me? That's sort of like the pattern as the psalmist goes through. And as, as in the beginning, he's like, look at all these people out there who are treacherous without cause. And then by the end of the prayer, he's like, I'm lonely. I'm lonely and I'm hurting and I need you to forgive the sins of my childhood and the sins of yesterday. And, and it's like the psalm just peels the layers back. It's, there's a, a, a marriage, um, I don't know what it is, a tool? It's a marriage thing that a therapist t told uh, my wife and I a few years ago called the emotions bucket. And we just take one question, what are you mad glad, sad, or scared about. You take one of those and you just say everything that you can think of that you're mad, glad, sad, or scared about. So you say, I'm, I'm mad at, 
I'm mad that we don't, that the, there are no cups in our cabinets. I don't feel like we have enough cups. We need more cups. I'm mad that there, you, know, you start there, right? And I'm mad actually that you haven't been around this this week and that I'm mad at this new job that you have a little bit. I'm mad at it. I, I'm mad that the, the kids aren't he, here and they're here. And, so, and then at the end, you're like, I'm mad that my father didn't show enough energy at home. He had so much energy for work and very little. And you're like, whoa, okay. Like you're peeling back the layers. Like I thought you were mad about the cups. Now you're like, dad. You know, but you see that happening. That's an incredibly healthy like tool for intimacy is to really begin sharing. And the other person's responsibility in that exercise is just to say, yes, anything else. They're not trying to fix you. They're not trying. All they're doing is listening and saying, is there anything more? And that just allows you to be like, dad. You see the prayer getting more and more honest. I have a part to play in this trouble. He he deals with his sin, past and present. He gets to the trouble of his own heart. Here's the thing. You have to have a place where you can be naked and unashamed. You have to have a place. Your soul needs a place where it can be naked and unashamed. You can learn that in a relationship with God, and then you can learn to practice it in relationship with other people. It's much more dangerous relationship with other people. But I want to tell you, it doesn't feel that less dangerous with God sometimes. But you learn to be naked and unashamed with God. You can learn to be naked and unashamed with a friend, with a parent, with a spouse. I'm not just talking about marriage relationship. You can learn this type of of being known. Someone knowing you all the way to the bottom, knowing the very worst thing about you and saying, I love you. I delight in you. I want you in. I want you part of the family. That, that's, that's the beauty of, of peeling the layers back. I got to um, watch the memorial service for a hero of mine this, this week, Tim Keller. And uh, he, he helped me get this maybe more than any other uh, c- communicator or preacher. You are more sinful than you dared imagine, but you are more loved than you ever dared hope. It's like if you can really look honestly at yourself, you're like, yeah, listen, there are problems in the world, but I'm contributing on some, some, some significant levels to the problems in my life and around me. But I am more loved than I ever dared hope. So much so that God would plunge himself into my story and get involved to the point of death to bring me into his family. Those are the moves. Put your trust Set it in a place on God. Say your situation and ask for help. Peel the layers back. We're going to come to the communion table uh, right now. And we do this every single week. Um, There's a pattern of coming to this communion table, of coming to the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And there's a pattern to it because we want it to form us. You are what you repeatedly do. We want to come every week to the table of communion. There's something tremendously beautiful about spontaneous prayer. There's something tremendously beautiful about an organic moment that just arises out of nowhere. But this psalm, Psalm 25, is a pattern. It follows the Hebrew alphabet. It's literally the cheesiest type of poem you can have. It's an acrostic. A is this. B is this, right? It's, it's the Hebrew alphabet. And so what does that mean? That means sometimes you don't know where to start and you need a pattern to help you. You're not always going to be flowing with spontaneous prayer that articulates everything that you have going on. And so you can pray the Lord's Prayer. You can pray the Psalms. You can come to the table of communion. Oftentimes in following a pattern in the kingdom of God, we give uh, sort of like a place for our creativity, our honesty to come alive. Praying the Psalms helps us see ourselves as we really are, helps us see God as God really is and gets us into a place of, of asking and receiving help. I was really convicted this psalm sort of begins and ends with trust. And I came across this statement. (laughs) Trust, what is it? Trust is waiting in hope. Trust is waiting in hope rather than waiting in resignation. 
I heard that and I thought, man, I wait in resignation all the time. And what that means is I don't see it as pride, but it is. Is I say, I know the last word on this situation. This bad things happen at our church. It's because I'm a bad leader and that's the final thing. This bad thing happens with my kids. It's because I'm a bad parent and that's the last word, right? I'm waiting in resignation. I don't know the outcome, but I'm giving the final word in advance. Trust is waiting with God's word as the final word. It's waiting in hope rather than resignation. And that's what this prayer is. It's a prayer for wholeness. It's a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer of learning to wait in hope. So I invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to prepare for communion. I can't stress this enough. We have a few more weeks left in this Praying the Psalms series. And the worst thing that could happen is that we just hear these psalms of like information about God. Uh, These are places for us to go in conversation. Uh, This psalm says that God wants friendship with us, that God moves in friendship with us. So as we come to the communion table, I want to invite you to make the moves that this psalm makes. Put your trust in God, remember God's character, and make moves of honesty. Just maybe try just those three things. Put your trust in God, remember God's character, say it to yourself as you come to the table, and then make moves of honesty. Say what's really going on in your situation. Say what's really happening in your heart, and see how the Spirit would minister back to you this morning. We're going to come to the table of grace. So let's set our hope on the grace. Set our hope on the grace to be revealed in this meal, in one another, in our worship, in our prayer. If the Spirit has prompted you in any way, I invite you to stay at the front. There will be people who would love nothing more than to pray with you. It doesn't have to be that your life's spinning out of control. It may be just what you want to give thanks for something good. We want to be a church that's constantly responding to the voice of the Spirit and praying for one another. Let's Let's read this as we prepare our hearts for communion. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus said there's there's no greater love than someone laying down their life for their friends. That's what Jesus has done for you. However hard it may be to hear, I want you to know this morning that God considers you a friend. God takes delight in you. When God had to answer the question, what would be worth it to bring you into the family? He said, I'd give my life. I'd give my life. I'd give my life. That's what this meal says. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that you would be son, you would be daughter, you would be beloved. You are beloved. However good we have gotten at messing it up, at sinning, we are not better than God is at forgiving. However far we've gone, we are one step from home. And that is just to turn and, and, and experience the embrace of the gospel, experience the embrace of Jesus. So as you come forward, set your hope on him. Say the true things about his character. And be honest, be honest, be honest. Church, I pray you'd have the courage to be honest in these next moments. Heavenly Father, I pray you would bless this meal, bless the bread and the cup, and bless your church as she comes. Lead us by your spirit over these next moments. In Jesus' name, amen.